Hi, this is Michael Waits, and I'm talking today to Tara Dermott, and Tara is the IOMX program leader for the International Organization for Migration. Tara, it's good to have you. Did I get that right? You did. Thanks for having me on your show. Awesome. It's great to have you here. So do you want to give a little bit of background of yourself for context? Sure. So I'm originally from Virginia in the United States of America, and I first moved to Thailand 14 years ago, uh, actually as a Peace Corps volunteer. I was stationed in a village in northeastern Thailand, really close to the Cambodian border. And that's where I learned about issues related to migration. And then I've been living and working in the region ever since. So the Peace Corps is a really interesting organization. What was your original interest in working for them? And did you choose Thailand or was it just something that was assigned to you? I don't know how that works. Actually, no, that's a good question. I had been hoping uh, to be assigned to China. The way Peace Corps works is that you get to prioritize a region of the world, Mm -hmm. but you don't get to choose a specific country. So I knew that I would be assigned somewhere in South, uh, Southeast or Eastern Asia, mm-hmm. but I didn't know where. And I wanted to go to China because I had studied Mandarin and I was a qualified English instructor. And so I felt well prepared for that. Uh, but when I opened the envelope, uh, <laughs> inviting me to Thailand, I knew that I would be a fool to say no. I was going to say, it's hard to be disappointed yeah. in that. <laughs> exactly. Um, and you know, the reason I wanted to, to volunteer for the Peace Corps specifically over other programs is it's a 27 month commitment. So you get three months of very strong in country language and cultural training, technical training, and then you spend two years at your community. And I, um, even going into it, but now I feel even more strongly that it really does take two years to, to start to accomplish anything, uh, so I'm I'm very happy that I had that experience. So so are you a Thai speaker? I am. I am no longer fluent, I'm afraid. Too much okay. time working regionally. But yes. Yeah, I understand yeah. that. And your Mandarin, where did you study Mandarin? I actually um, started, I did some middle school and high school living in Beijing. So wow. I started studying there and then continued at a university, a school called Dickinson College in Pennsylvania. Dickinson. Is Dickinson yeah. part of the 12 college exchange? I don't I, know. I went to Connecticut College, right? So it's a small Northeastern liberal arts college. And I think Dickinson was part of some organization that, that we were in as well. Anyway, I'm just curious. Not a big deal. Okay. Cool. Okay. So do you want to give a little bit of background as well about what IOM is and then maybe what the difference is between IOM and IOMX? Sure. So the International Organization for Migration, or IOM, is the UN's migration agency. So essentially, we are dedicated to promoting humane and orderly migration for the benefit of all. Uh, And I'd, I'd like to reiterate that. We believe that migration benefits all when conducted in an orderly and safe manner. Uh, And so IOM really supports this vision by providing services and advice to governments, but also to migrants themselves. Mm. Uh, And this is where IOMX comes into it. So IOMX is actually one specific program or project uh, that is managed by the IOM Regional Office for Asia and the Pacific here in Bangkok. And IOMX is our innovative campaign to encourage safe migration and public action to stop exploitation and human trafficking. Um, I'd like to just add that we are youth-focused and that given the complexity 
of you know what we're seeing from migration and trafficking trends in this region we also apply a sector specific approach to our work so you know we'll do sort of campaigns or interventions that are focused on addressing exploitation in the fishing industry or domestic work or manufacturing yeah i mean it seems to me that migration and also sort of the humanity of work in and of itself, right? It's got to be related to every industry out there, right? Whether it's manufacturing or fishing or construction or agriculture or anything really, right? Like it's endemic everywhere, no? Absolutely. And, and, you know, this is one of the first things that we're really trying to drive home to people is that, you know, human trafficking, forced labor, modern slavery, whichever term you want to subscribe to the kinds of exploitation that we're seeing happens in every country in the world across industries. Yeah. And, and so, you know, it touches all of our lives, even in ways that we may not realize. When you talk to people in Thailand or even in other countries in the region, do you get the sense that they're not as aware that it's happening in other places as it is here? I kind of call this the, the sort of fallacy of proximity, right? People say, oh, this only happens in X place only because they're there. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. I mean, that's an interesting question. I think that the truth is, is with you know, with with human trafficking, with exploitation, it's more likely that people will want to deny its existence where they live, right? Because it it doesn't reflect well on any of us. Um, And so I think that it's more, a, a lot of what we're trying to do is to increase people's understanding sort of beyond that it just happens here, but, but what specifically it can look like, right? Um, right. Because I think... Uh, Certainly in the time that I've been working in this region, I have seen kind of broad awareness of what human trafficking is increase exponentially, right? So, Oh, yeah. So, I mean, when I was first, gosh, I think my first job working on a counter-trafficking project was in Cambodia in 2007. Mm -hmm. And then if people had heard about human trafficking, they only associated it with trafficking for sexual exploitation. So primarily, you know, women and children as victims. Uh, it was really at that time when people were first starting to recognize that men could be victims of trafficking in labor industries. Right, like construction uh, is probably a really good example of this. Exactly. Construction, fishing is one that's been a high-profile example in recent years. Um, yeah, so I think, you know, the the understanding that this is a, that this is not the trafficking happens for sexual exploitation, for labor exploitation, that it can happen to men, women, and girls. I think we've seen, uh, sorry, girls and boys, right. uh, that we've seen this kind of a broad strokes awareness increase a lot. But one of the things that we found is when we deep dive to the specific industries, people are less familiar with what it, what it potentially looks like there. Right, you know? right. Right. So that was the next question I wanted to ask you is what does it look like? In other words, how would I know exploitation when I see it? Right. In other words, I see construction sites everywhere. I see hundreds of people. You can tell they're not necessarily from here. How do do you know? Uh, That's a great question. And it's tough. I mean, so of the sort of over 45 million people who are believed to currently be in slave-like situations globally, more than half are in this region. And the majority of them are in situations of forced labor. And the truth is, is that often the indicators of that aren't visible to the naked eye, right? right? How would you know? Uh, Yeah, exactly. So like one of the primary causes of or sort of uh, experiences of exploitation is debt bondage. So you get a lot of migrant workers who are 
you know, going through uh, legitimate recruitment agencies or fraudulent recruitment agencies, you know, but they end up in situations where their very first day of work in the country of destination, they are already sort of three to five years in debt. Uh, so they're, they just start working to pay off that debt before they can start to profit from their labor, right? So that's, uh, that's something that IOM globally is looking to, um, is putting a lot of effort into addressing sort of promoting ethical recruitment mm. as a way to stop debt bondage before it starts. Uh, but, you know, other indicators that, that um, we're more likely to maybe observe in our lives is restricted freedom of movement, right? So workers who are locked into their workplaces, and that could be on a construction site, or it could be, you know, in your neighbor's home with their domestic worker, right? So workers who are, um, they're not allowed to come and go as they please, they're maybe not given time, uh, regular time off, uh, they're made to work incredibly long hours. Yeah, those are kind of indicators that we may see. Right. But, but at the end of the day, all we can do is potentially report suspected cases. Uh, it's ultimately up to, you know, investigators uh, to decide if it has actually been, uh, if it's actually a case of labor exploitation, if that's actually the result of a trafficking process. Um, and yeah, that takes a lot more, a lot more access to a lot more information than than we typically have as just observers. Right. So there have been a few secular changes recently, and I want to talk a little bit about the sort of IOMX innovations and stuff that you're doing there, particularly as it comes to communication um, mm -hmm. for behavioral change, but also communication for development, right? But before we do that, I just want to establish something, and that is the secular changes that are taking place is globally, and you tell me if you think I'm wrong, is that there's kind of this small wave of authoritarianism rising, and within that wave there's also this sort of anti-migrant and anti-immigration wave that's taking place, not just in the United States, but but in Europe. And the idea is that people are using media for negative purposes, right? To portray migrants as negative impactors on the societies in which they're entering. And I kind of agree with you. And that is, well, two things. One is, you know, humane and sort of controlled migration is good for everybody. And humans have been migrating naturally forever, there would be yeah. nobody in most countries if humans didn't migrate. That's first of all. But second of all, media is a powerful, very powerful tool for positive change, social change, any kind of change. And I get the sense that media globally is now being used for negative change, right? To impress upon people that things that are happening are bad when those things could actually be good. So I want to understand what you are doing in the media space at IOMX to sort of change that messaging. Gosh, that's a that's a really big question. So, it is, it is. Yeah. But that's the whole. But that's the whole point. And I get I get very excited about this. Or animated, maybe is the better word, right? So the reason why I do what I do is because I think there needs to be a countervailing force in the world to sort of general or mainstream media, for lack of a better term, that portrays sort of you know migration and immigration as something that's really negative. When in fact, all of us have migrated or immigrated from one place to another place. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. So actually, I may, I may answer this a bit more broadly from IOM's experience before kind of diving into IOMX. But so yeah, IOM has certainly been recognizing a lot of these sentiments that are very anti-migration and, and oftentimes trying to um, scapegoat migrant populations for criminal activities or, you know, the, the sure. certainly the rise of xenophobia. Um, 
And so we've run a number of campaigns globally that have been trying to sort of flood the media with with an alternative story about migration, right? So right. there was the sort of hashtag I am a migrant campaign that was featuring sort of famous migrants over time that have contributed great things to, to our societies, to science and technology, um, and also just encouraging individuals to participate in that. Uh, and, you know, it, it, it's ongoing. And I think that it, it is a positive voice out there. Uh, but it's really tough for singular campaigns to compete with what we're seeing in mainstream media, as you rightly said, in countries all around the world. Right. Um, and the truth is, is that we know that what people see in the media is directly influencing their personal beliefs and even how they may want to participate in society. Um, actually, can I can I share a little anecdote from a program Please. that I listened to recently? Yeah, so Please. I listened to this um, this really great program recently that was looking at the, the potential power of media with regard to how people vote, right? And so it is a it is a U.S. example, but essentially they found that they sort of did a media mapping and found mm -hmm. that crimes that were committed. Uh, with the, the suspects for the criminal activity uh, were Muslim in America, received five times more coverage than crimes where the suspects were not considered to be Muslim, right? So right off the bat, they said, this is happening. There is a lot of negative coverage of Muslim populations in the U.S. Right. And then they organized a couple of focus groups where they put uh, people into a room where they were exposed to this kind of negative coverage of uh, about Muslim populations and then asked them how they would support or not support uh, new policies on immigration to the U.S., right? And not surprisingly, they found that people were more likely to be against immigration reform policies that were supportive for migrants coming in, especially Muslim migrants. Uh, but then they did another focus group with people who were being exposed to positive stories about Muslim communities, you know, charities or things like that, and found that they were much more positive uh, to support immigration reform that was supportive of migrants coming in, right? Right. I mean, this is not shocking. And, and, and I'll ask the question, too, is how do you identify anybody from any group, right? In other words, I can... I, I like to push this question to people, right? So how do you identify somebody who's a Muslim? Because a Sikh may look exactly like a Muslim and yet have a completely different belief system. And yet, if you're just... Like, it's so simple. Your grandmother told you this when you were five years old, right? Don't judge a book by its cover. It's so simple. Right. People should understand this more, I think. Basically, I feel like that that really shows that... The media, well, media, media that matters, we consume, right? yeah, that, that it does matter. Um, and so, you know, while IOM as a global organization has been running kind of global awareness campaigns, uh, I think there is a place for them and they're very important. But IOMX takes a slightly different approach. Okay. So we actually look to do much more targeted campaigns. Uh, and this is because we apply communication for development so have you heard of C4D? I mean, I've done some work on it, obviously, in preparation for this, but I haven't done, right. I haven't looked at C4D as much as you have for sure, right? Okay. Well, then, then um, I'm just going to sort of tell you a little bit about how, how we understand 
understand it Tell and me. how we apply it. Yes. Okay. So, uh, so communication for development or C4D is sort of one of the more popular approaches under the strategic communication umbrella. So C4D draws from theories and practices from sociology, psychology, communication, and private sector marketing to create solutions to social problems, right? So at sort of more of a granular level, C4D is ultimately about applying evidence-informed participatory processes mm -hmm. to try to influence levels of knowledge, influence attitudes, and ultimately inspire behaviors of targeted audiences like around a specific topic so that we can create change and so that we can hope to try to measure that change. Right. So the measurement is actually really important to me. I guess the question is, how do you know you're targeting the right audience and what do you use as a measurement tool to determine whether you're actually having the impact you think you're having or you want to have? Gosh. Okay. So those are two huge questions. So I'm going to start with, <laughs> I'm going to start with targeting. When we were designing the IOMX campaign. So four years ago, you know, we're, we're sort of putting together what this project would look like and, and flushing out our, our logical framework, right, our, our results matrix. Um, and we were looking at a couple of trends in this region. So we, we were looking at uh, the changing media landscape, right? So recognizing that we needed to be responsive to how people are increasingly shifting away from kind of traditional media to Absolutely. new media. But then we were also highly cognizant of the fact that it's, you know, when we look at trafficking trends, it's primarily young people who are at risk of being trafficked. Uh, so these are, you know, a lot of young people who are graduating from school and communities that just don't have enough jobs for them. Uh, and so, you know, they're having to leave, they're having to migrate, whether within their own countries or across borders. Uh, but then we also recognize that young people are increasingly, uh, you know, the, the demand audience, right? They are sure. consumers, they are employers of, of workers. Um, and so really recognizing the, the importance of engaging with young people on this issue uh, was, was, was a priority for us. So that's where we sort of decided to start by targeting, where we said, okay, we're going to look at sort of. 18 to 35 year olds across Asia, right? So we're going to yep. prioritize the 10 member states of ASEAN. Uh, but then we're also going to do work in Bangladesh because of close migratory ties uh, with Southeast Asia. Yeah. Um, but even like, obviously in this region, there is so much diversity of language and culture and media consumption habits uh, that, um, that we needed to really target further. So like I said, in the beginning, um, we, we take a sector specific approach. So when we first started, we prioritized fishing and domestic work because these were the two sectors where a study that IOM conducted with the London school of hygiene and tropical medicine, uh, found that uh, men in the fishing industry and women working as domestic workers experienced the worst forms of exploitation associated with trafficking. Wow. Now, this is probably due to their relative isolation, right? Right, right. right. You're and on a boat in the middle of exactly. the ocean. Like, where do you go? Exactly. Or you're locked into someone's in a room. home, right? right. Yeah. Right. Uh, and you don't so get Sundays or Saturdays off, right? It's hard to control this. It, it, exactly. And so these were the two sectors that we decided to prioritize. 
but again, you know, recognizing the the varied roles that young people play, you know, we recognize that uh, the information that a young woman who wants to work as a domestic worker needs before she makes that decision, you know, when she is at her workplace, is it 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 may be quite similar to the information that the employer of the domestic worker needs about her rights and you know legal protections, but the way that they consume information how much they care about this uh, is going to vary drastically, right? right? So so for targeting our audiences, we think in terms of age, we think in terms of sex, we think in terms of sort of socioeconomic or education levels. Uh, and then we also think about the sector that we're speaking of because this enables us to give really clear kind of calls to action that are relevant to the audience that we may be targeting with a specific campaign. Right. Can you talk about a specific video that you've done, whether it's one for maids or for migrants or for fishing? I'm just really curious. I want to get very specific about the type of content that you're producing and then what the impact of that content is or how you're trying at least to measure it, right? Yeah. So um, I think I'll go ahead and, and talk about um, a video that we produced to promote domestic worker rights. Got it. Uh, so it was a part of a big campaign called the IOMX Happy Home Campaign. And we produced a video called Open Doors. And this was featuring sort of three stories of employers, uh, employer families, and the domestic workers that they hired. So employers in Singapore, Malaysia, and Thailand. Okay. Uh, and they each had a, a migrant domestic worker in their home. And each video was only maybe sort of uh, five to seven minutes long, but told the story of someone kind of bringing in uh, a domestic worker or having a domestic worker. They face some challenge, but then it's resolved, right? So the idea was to model for employers of domestic workers what a positive relationship with their domestic worker could look like. Would look like, um, yeah, or should look like. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and actually, we were promoting pretty basic things in it. So we were promoting that domestic workers be allowed to have one regular day off a week to spend where and how they please, that domestic workers be allowed to hold on to their own documentation, their passports, their work permit, uh, and that domestic workers be allowed to have access to um, a mobile phone or, you know, the Internet, some device by which they can remain connected with their families. And, and what was so wonderful about these stories is, you know, we used drama, which is understood as being sort of best practice for, you know, really inspiring the way people feel about subject matter. Right. Uh, and actually, while we launched these three videos in 2016 uh, in Jakarta, like home of the ASEAN Secretariat, uh, one of the videos, uh, the video that features the Singaporean family, ended up going viral and has been viewed over 170 million times, <laughs> uh, which is amazing. Um, and I think it just goes to show that that when you can create something that really taps into know, emotion like that, people are, it resonates with people in there and they're likely to share it. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. So how do you control whether people are actually taking someone's passport away from them, right? Or their identity card and just ensuring that people have a mobile phone so that they have communication to the external world, right? I mean, the biggest problem, yeah. I think, or one of the biggest problems, you know, you mentioned it in the maid context or the domestic health context, but also for fishing 
you can't jump off a boat and there's no one to complain to, right? There's no authority. Right. Well, I mean, the, the good thing is, is that in, in most of the countries where we work, there are government agencies uh, and there are certainly civil society organizations that are, are working hard to provide services to these workers. Right. But often there's a, there's like an access gap, right? So workers, sure. workers may not know about those services uh, or they may not have a phone to be able to access those services, you know. Um, but so the, the good thing for us, and actually one of the things that is very important to the campaigns that we do is that we are promoting uh, actions uh, that are supported by national level laws and policies or, you know, helplines or resources that people can contact. Right. Yeah. So, you know, um, specific with domestic workers, uh, there's a number of organizations uh, that have built really large domestic worker networks, right? So there's a lot of domestic workers themselves who are doing outreach to new workers that are in their apartment buildings or, you know, there's a lot of sort of old school sliding pamphlets or information under people's doors or sticking it in mailboxes, right, about domestic worker rights. And, yeah. um, and so, you know, from IOM's perspective, we didn't want to reinvent the wheel or to kind of move into areas where there's already organizations that are doing great work. So for us, and a huge part of why we do C4D, these sort of participatory production processes, right. is when we're right. developing this video, we're doing consultations with all of the organizations that we can find that are already working in this space, both government and non-government, right? right? To sort of say, what are you already doing? What are some of the key messages you want to be communicating? You know, how can we complement your ongoing efforts? And then also, how can we, you know, promote uh, the services that you do have so we can direct people to contact you um, if and when they do need help? Right. So how do you use how do you use social media to get those messages out to your target audiences? Right. I mean, you yeah. know, countries, countries like Thailand, countries like Myanmar, countries like the Philippines, where they're, you know, obviously big issues. They're almost like Facebook or Twitter nations, not so much Twitter, but more Facebook. They're on social media all the time. How do you use that to sort of impact this stuff? Yeah. So it, again, it really depends on the audience. So as, as you rightly pointed out, um, pretty much everyone is on Facebook. And so that's one of the main ways that we communicate. Mm -hmm. uh, but we also look to other social media platforms as well. So for example, when we're targeting urban audiences, so these demand audiences, whether that's employers or uh, consumers, one of the ways that we have found that we can kind of cut through the, the noise, right, or yeah. all, of all the media that they are consuming every day is by engaging with influencers. Um, so take Thailand, for example. Uh, I, I, you're probably across some of the stats associated with the digital revolution. Uh, but <laughs> you're thinking, <laughs> yeah, but a few of them. Yeah. So Thailand, uh, and actually for the countries where we work, so Thailand, Malaysia, Indonesia, and the Philippines are all in the top 10 countries of most time spent online. Right. So oh, easily. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Statistically, that's actually a fact. That's not a presumption. That's a exactly. So in Thailand, you have people on the internet, for up to nine hours a day, right? And this is like average amount of time spent online, uh, on the internet, right? And five hours of that is mm -hmm. through their phones. Right. We also know that young Thais 
are spending on average two hours every evening watching YouTube, right? Not TV, not other like video platforms, just specifically YouTube. So we established a partnership with Google, with uh, YouTube Thailand to meet with Thailand's top YouTube creators and pitch to them. This is our campaign. Uh, We would like to launch a campaign in Thailand that encourages Thai consumers to care about the people behind the products that they buy. Right. Uh, And so how they're made and what the supply chain does and all that stuff. Right. Exactly. But, you know, but still being quite creative. Right. This is a first entry point of like getting people to care. And six of the uh, kind of the top creators uh, decided that they wanted to work with us. And so they each produced their own style of video on this subject matter. And we had a launch at Central World in March of this year. Uh, and it was just incredible to see not just the reach, right? So these YouTube creators have an established following of sort of 13 million followers, right? Right. Uh, but the engagement that we saw with the videos far surpassed engagement that we've had uh, on more sort of uh, traditional celebrity-driven stuff, right? Yeah, right. Because like, that, that was going to be the question I asked you. That was going to be the question I asked you. Sorry to interrupt you, but there's this concept globally, right? So there's an influencer idea, but the idea that sort of celebrities are, gr- are a great way to get a message across. And I always worry that like the celebrities, they're almost like um, like helicopter parents, right? They helicopter in, they give a message, they go back to their regular life. I I, I wonder what the but you, what you're saying is the impact of influencers, people that are really out there producing real content on a day-to-day basis, they actually do have some level of influence on the way people think about this. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, and it's funny that you use that helicopter analogy. So we actually did focus group consultations with young Thais mm-hmm. be- before designing this uh, this campaign where we partnered with YouTube. So before we even knew we were going to partner with influencers, mm-hmm. we hired a, a research agency to do kind of market-based, qualitative research for us to find out, you know, what really resonates with young ties. And this agency showed these ties videos that we have made in the past where we've worked with some of Thailand's hottest stars, like their faces right. are all over Everywhere. advertisements yeah, yeah. on the SkyTrain, right? Right, right, um, right. And, and when we showed these videos, you know, the response was good. They liked the videos. But when asked about how they felt about that celebrity participation, they said, look, we don't really trust them, right? Right. Right. That was my point. That was my point. We imagine that they have other motivations, that it's more about the press and publicity than it is about the issue. Um, Whereas when it's these creators that have curated their audiences, you know, they've, uh, sorry, the, the influencers, right? They have a curated audience of people who subscribe to them, who trust them, who you know, in many cases, admire them, uh, they are at least perceived to be a lot more committed and authentic, uh, to right? the things that they talk about. Exactly. That authentic voice. Um, and the fact that we worked with them in a way where they used their own voices and creative styles to create the content, right. uh, that just sort of reinforced that to their audiences. Uh, so that's been an important learning for us, um, especially here in Thailand. So I want to switch gears a little bit, only because you mentioned the Philippines, right? Are you familiar with someone named, and it's, it's slightly off topic, but still, it's it's media and it's impact of media and the power of media, which is something I think that's interesting to both of us, right? Yeah. Are you familiar with Maria Ressa? 
No. So Maria Ressa runs, a, she's a Princeton graduate um, and is very famous in the Philippines and runs a website called Rappler. And Rappler is just, and it's also in the region as well. Rappler is something I think that should be interesting to all of us. The only reason why I ask, again, not to put you on the spot, is to say that here's someone who's trying to use media to expose similar topics that you are and then give them a public voice, right, so that people understand what's happening. She was recently arrested in the Philippines. Right. Um, yeah, you can look it up. R A P P L E R, and her last right. name is R E S S A. Right. And obviously, she's out on bail. But it's just interesting the way she's trying to use media, not just in in um, the Philippines, which she calls kind of a Facebook nation, right? But here's the negative side of the way media gets used, which is opposite to the impact that you're having, right? Mm-hmm. She's trying to do the same thing you are, but is being what's the right word? Squelched by the Norte, if I pronounce that correctly, administration. And I think it's important for all of us, not, you know, for human trafficking, um, for this sort of embedded slavery type of um, working that you're talking about as well, but also for larger issues to use media for the public good and for social change. It's really important. Anyway, I just wanted to see if this was something else that, that we should talk about. But I, but I think in the context of all the stuff we're doing, the positive use of media to get a message out and the use of influencers like you're talking about that are authentic is a great way to get this message out. And particularly if you're saying that somebody has watched this video a hundred and something million times or stuff like that is really great. Yeah. Yeah. So another thing that maybe sets the work that we're doing with IOMX apart from other counter-trafficking efforts is that we are very much a positive campaign. Mm-hmm. So, and it's, uh, again, it's sort of considered best practice from a communication for development or a behavior change communications perspective is that, you know, when we're trying to encourage people to, to change the way they feel about an issue or to, to hopefully inspire actual behavioral adoption or, or mm-hmm. change, we know that people are most likely to, to change their behaviors if they feel that they can have an impact, right? Right, right, And an right. issue like human trafficking is so big and dark and awful that it's easy to feel overwhelmed by it. What can I do, right? Yeah, yeah. So by having these very targeted campaigns there where we always model what the desired behavior is, like that's our answer to that. Now, that said, uh, that's only one part of, you know, we're only filling sort of one part of media that needs to be done. Uh, I think there's so much importance in, you know, the high quality investigative journalism that is happening on this. Uh, right, right. And, you know, uh, the Guardian, Thompson Reuters Foundations, uh, CNN, there are these kind of global, uh, global media outlets that have specific um, either uh, counter trafficking or anti-slavery uh, programming that they're doing. Mm-hmm. And, and I think that that's very helpful from an advocacy perspective, from just increasing everyone's understanding of, of what this looks like, what trends are. Uh, and so, yeah, I mean, uh, I, I applaud Rappler if, if they're also trying to increase people's understanding of what this looks like and, you know, um, and I'm, yeah, I'm sorry to hear about 
Yeah, it's Africa. terrible. Yeah. Um, so one of the other things that we want to touch on, right, is this idea. We talked about, um, what is it, communication for development, right? You want to also talk a little bit about this theory of communication for behavioral change, right? If, if that's what the goal is, is to go out and change people's behavior over time, right? So if success is measured by, wait a second, this is happening less and less as we go along because somebody knows somebody who won't let the maid out of that. Like, how do? what is this theory of the communication for behavioral change? Can we explain that to people? Under C for D, there's this model that we look to. It's called the socio-ecological model. Mm-hmm. And it basically is, if you can imagine, a few concentric circles, right, where the, the middle circle is the individual. And then around the circle around the individual is your kind of community. And then beyond that is more society, right? And yep. Uh, where communication for development is great is it it helps us to understand and provide us with guidance around varied approaches that we can take to to design communication interventions at at each of those levels of society, right? So we know that um, if you want to go for that big circle, that sort of societal influence, you need to use advocacy, right? It's straight up advocacy methods. If you want to engage with more of the community level, uh, so your families, uh, community level leadership, you're looking at more uh, what we call social mobilization approaches. Interesting. But then at that individual level, that's where your behavior change communication approaches are sort of, uh, you know, how can we engage with individuals to inspire them to change their behaviors? Uh, and it, it's tough, right? Because we know that just because people have the right information does not mean that they will change their behaviors. Like exactly. this is just, yeah, it's very well documented now, right? Um, but fortunately, there have been a lot of behavioral scientists who have been looking at this issue and trialing various approaches uh, since since the term C4D was coined in the early '80s. Uh, and and so we know that there are certain methods that can really help with. Uh, with encouraging behavior change. Uh, so for example, like best, best practice is, is two way communication. So actually direct outreach and engagement with individuals to have kind of tailored conversations with them where you can walk them through, you know, the decision-making process. Like we know that that's most likely to encourage behavior change. And what I think is exciting is how can we start to, apply what we know from sort of offline engagement for behavior change? How can we, how can we try and leverage online platforms to achieve that same thing? Right. Right. Um, And this is still a a new area and it's an area that I think, you know, we're constantly trying and and maybe failing a little bit and then trying again in a different way. Right. Uh, But it, but it does make me excited um, to think about, uh, so, for example, in Myanmar, we launched a campaign, Make Migration Work. And one of the key things that we were promoting there was a mismigration Facebook chatbot. Uh, because in Myanmar, I mean, there, there's no internet literacy. It's Facebook literacy, right? Right. People yeah, are yeah. just Facebook. Uh, and so we thought they're already there, you know, consuming information, watching funny videos, communicating with their family and friends. Like, what if we make them aware of the fact that they can also use that to inform their migration decision, right? Or to get information that they need uh, to make sure that themselves or their family member are sort of 
migrating in the safest possible way. Um, and, and that's very exciting to me. Yeah. I mean, look, I think it's really interesting that you're using some of the same tools for engagement and for conversion that people talk about, you know, in online to offline or offline to online for e-commerce. Like the technology essentially is the same or can be right. the same. It's just what you're, what the output is that you're trying to achieve. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, look, I feel like there's a much longer conversation to have here, but I don't want to take up any more of your time. Hopefully this has been as interesting and exciting for you as it has been for me. I want to let you go, but this has really been awesome. I really appreciate your time, Tara. Oh, I've also really enjoyed the conversation. Um, and if you don't mind, I'd like to do a quick plug. Sure. Yeah, so actually, IOMX, we have been up and running for four years, and um, we've kind of built a huge library of content, but also guidance on how to apply communication for development. So anyone who's interested can visit iomx.iom.int and, and all of the content guidance, everything is rights free and available to download at no cost. So I encourage anyone who's interested in learning more about human trafficking to watch videos or to learn more about how to apply communication for development to any social issues that they would like to see uh, have positive impact. It's all there. Awesome. That's really useful. Thank you very much. Yeah, thank you.